Corpses, wrapped in their gold brocade, lay on bamboo biers awaiting cremation. The sky darkened, and silhouettes appeared in the yellow rectangles of the tall apartment buildings on Riverside Drive. The air was high with the clouds of incense, the crashing of bells, the frantic chanting in Sanskrit. The people of two cities and myriad systems of belief poured out into the Riverside. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Atish Tasir traveled to Varanasi to learn Sanskrit and to connect with the ancient learned traditions of India. Tasir joins us today to talk about his experiences in Varanasi and his book, The Twice Born, out now in paperback, in which he uses Brahmanical culture as the lens through which to explore a variety of topics like the tensions between tradition and modernity. We also talk a great deal about Modi, Hindu nationalism, their parallels with Donald Trump, and authenticity and fraudulence in travel writing. So now, here is Atish Tassir. Well, Atish, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So your book, out now in paperback, is called The Twice Born, Life and Death on the Ganges. In this book, you travel to Varanasi for about a year, if I'm not mistaken. And in a 2019 timepiece, you said something to the effect of Varanasi being to Hindus as Jerusalem, Rome, and Mecca are to Jews, Catholics, and Muslims. Can you explain to us the spiritual significance of Varanasi for Hindus? Absolutely. So um, that is that is the right equivalent, Jerusalem, Mecca, Rome. But what's interesting about Varanasi, and the historian Diana Eck has written about this to some, to some extent, is that th- there's this almost this sense of um, of a kind of cosmic center, which uh, Indians or, or traditional Hindus are very much aware of, where all the holy places of India are replicated in Varanasi. And Varanasi itself is replicated throughout India. So it almost like serves as a kind of mirror um, for the unity of what is like a sacred topography. It's this, it's, you know, one of the people in in the book will say, for instance, he's like, well, everybody can see the Varanasi uh, that is before our eyes. You know, everyone can see the city, the physical city, but there is another city, which he describes as the subtle Varanasi, which is like the sun behind the clouds. And the endeavor for believing Hindus is to almost like inculcate or to, to, uh, to sort of, imagine that inner city of Varanasi and, and its sort of cosmic significance. So it's you're absolutely right. It's this religious center, this sacred center, but it also has this this other almost spiritual side for the for the um for the for the what what they call hierophancy, you know, for this idea of, of it serving as a totemic symbol mm. of, of India as a holy land. That's interesting that you mentioned this uh, another city, the sun behind the clouds, because uh, there is a point in the book, and I'll 
ask you about this later, but there's a point in this book where it seems like you, you're able to finally peek behind the veil of the city and kind of you know get a good, a true sense of what the city is about in distinction from the perspective of a tourist visiting to the city. You're able to kind of penetrate and, and, and catch a glimpse of what was behind the veil, so to speak. And what what is the moment you're thinking of? Well, the moment I'm thinking of is the moment that you visited and met with Professor Tripathi and uh, and the discussions that they were having in Sanskrit. Do you, do you remember right. that? Absolutely, absolutely. No, th- you're absolutely right to to point to that moment. So it's it's. Let me just say out front that Brahmanical culture, which is the, the Brahmins are the highest, they form a kind of aristocracy of the mind. They're the highest in the caste system. They represent a scholarly class of intellectuals, of people who who are considered sort of like the mind of this like four-tiered structure that is the Hindu caste system. And they're the sort of, they, they kind of sit on top of it. And they are by nature very cagey there is uh, there is this sense and they've been accused of it in the past of hoarding knowledge and uh and it wasn't easy to penetrate varanasi because people uh were not that that world or the inner life of the city people were quite secretive about and this is something that like people travelers have encountered for centuries i mean somebody like william jones who basically sort of is the father of modern linguistics when he wanted to learn sanskrit or when he wanted to kind of find out like because there are these deep connections between sanskrit and greek he couldn't he was living in india he was posted in india in the 18th century and nobody would tell him anything and it was finally from a non-brahmin that he found kind of a a little bit of like he was given a little insight into what the culture of the language was. So I encountered weirdly like a similar resistance and it wasn't easy um, a to see some of the grandeur of what we're talking about, but also to actually get people to speak freely. And then suddenly um, in this moment when I was very near to giving up, I sort of stumbled into this room where they said, you know, you can find this man Tripathi and, there were these guys as if it was almost like it, it felt like Socratic in the way that all of these Brahmins literally living the life of the mind as would have existed 20 centuries ago had assembled to have this discussion about a very minute point of, um, of uh, Sanskrit like hermeneutics. And, uh, and, and suddenly they sort of all burst into this language which is ostensibly dead. I mean, it's like Latin or ancient Greek. And suddenly they're all discussing this point of classical learning as if no time had elapsed, you know, as if the mm-hmm. modern era didn't exist. And so it was, it was very, very powerful to see that side of it for the first time. And and so we, we should just clarify for the listeners. So the twice born in the title, this refers to the Brahmins? So I have it as a double meaning. Okay. There is okay. there is this sense that the Brahmin is the Brahmin is twice born because he's born once, and then again when he's initiated by rites into his caste, and so the second birth is very important because he finds his vocation, so to speak. Uh, but it was very important for me because my theme was ancient cultures like India's that had been reborn as modern nations, and I was dealing with that tension of. Um, of on one hand the continuation of ancient culture in India and of this 
difficulty to translate one's old self into a modern globalized present. Mm-hmm. So, so that was the double tension of the double sense of the twice born in the title. So, so you're Indian and you spent most of your adult life in India. You speak Hindi, um, you know, and, and yet we get the sense that you are in some ways an outsider in, of course, in, in Varanasi. And I was just kind of wondering why do you think that there was some sort of separation between you and your upbringing and your kind of access to this secretive world of Sanskrit and, and, and spirituality? Well, the separation was modernity, Jeremy. I mean, it, it was the fact that I belonged to a, to a colonial class in whom a break had occurred. That, that, and that break was the modern European present. So that, that sense that places like Japan have encountered, that Russia has encountered, that even finally enough like Germany, which you would imagine really at, at the heart of Europe, has also reckoned with, is this idea that like traditional culture for somebody like myself is over. And that it's over because of the intervention or the advent of the English in India mm-hmm. and of my receiving the modern education of being broken from the life of the village, from, tra- from, from tradition, so to speak. And so I would encounter this city almost exactly as you would encounter it, except that probably for me there would be a reserve uh, of longing, of sentimentality, of, of a kind of like, I guess, a pain mm. to deal with that separation which perhaps you would be indifferent to in that context, but you would maybe feel it in relation to another culture because that break has occurred throughout the kind of world we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that kind of the the, the break, uh, the chasm that modernity uh, created in some ways. But this book, it also seems to me about that, right? Um, very much so, but also like the sense that um, it's about... Uh, the power of ideas, um, in particular, the power and pull of outside ideas. You know, so we have modernity on one hand, but also, you know, we got to factor in the the question of Islam. So, is is it an outsider thing, or is it strictly a, a modernity thing? Well, in, India has India has grappled with this, like probably like this is a country that has for over a thousand years had multiple invasions, interventions, migrations from the world beyond the Himalayas. From So you have India kind of with this girdle of mountains around it, and you've had these like, and India has always been engaged in this business of assimilating newness and of finding a place for it. And there's this very interesting moment that Tripathi says, where he says, you know, Islam was very violent. It, it destroyed our temples. It sort of it desecrated our culture, and at the same time, it posed no intellectual threat. He felt that that actually it was something that India was very easily able to assimilate. And he said, but this other thing, this, this European intervention has, has a very powerful thought content on its side. And for him, there was this sense that, that, that something unassimilable had, had come with the Europeans and, and that they hadn't, that, that, that suddenly like the culture that had prided itself on being able to assimilate newness was suddenly paralyzed 
in this confrontation with East and West. And that if in the past the meeting of cultures had been creative, that there was something, there was a kind of sterility about this different meeting between East and West, which is, which is very much, which is, which is very much part of the tension that, uh, that I was exploring that in a sense, traditional culture had calcified and it was neither able to grow nor was it fully able to assimilate the influence of the West. Mm, so the rise of Modi and the Hindu nationalists are in the background, well, they're in the foreground of this book. In, in light of current events, you know, in what direction is, is this going? I mean, can, in your opinion, India be both traditionally minded or open and accepting and assimilating, but also kind of retaining some of that uh, core culture? No, no, no. My view is very much a, a pessimistic view. My view is that that India will commit a kind of intellectual suicide, the way we saw Russia dealing with a similar problem. By the way, also do because uh, the, so the tension that we're talking about is not unlike the tension we have in the United States. This idea of authenticity of the real America, of some kind of heartland, contesting against a world of like urban sophistication, of cosmopolitanism, of foreigners, like those lines are very similar. The difference, of course, is that here in the United States, there would not necessarily be the sense of modern culture as something alien or foreign. Whereas in places like India, people are very much defending what they think of as, as a kind of essence or a, of a true culture. And, and trying to assert it almost as a solution to the problems of modernity, which, of course, it can never be. And my feeling is that as much as the nationalists in India right now electorally may win or succeed or not succeed, the actual cultural change that they've brought about is going to be lasting. And it's going to lead India down a very bad road. Because people will, people will try with a kind of desperation to look to their culture as a solution to the problems of modernity, which it cannot be. Hmm. I'm glad you brought up the, the Trump parallel because that was going on in the back of my mind here as I, I read the, the book, right? The Trump's approach seems to parallel Modi's. I, I don't know much about India, but it seems that Modi is especially confrontational and populist and you know, has this nationalistic message, which, you know, Trump seems to be borrowing from <laughs> his playbook there. Well, I have to tell you, Jeremy, when I, when I was conceiving this book, which was all prior to the Trump election, I have a husband from the American South, from, from Tennessee, and the kind of conversation we're having now, I, I was trying to have with him and with other people. And it was almost impossible to have at that point because there was this kind of glow from the Obama years. And to talk about this, the friction that I was talking about between elites and like a heartland and open revolt, between urban and rural, between like this, this sense of like people feeling that their essence had been kind of invaded by, by a foreign occupation of ideas, of wealth. Of, like it was impossible to speak in these terms until 2016. And then suddenly I remember my, my editor at FSG wrote me this note and he said, well, 
the thing that you were trying to write about, it's gone global, hasn't it? Like, I suddenly know exactly what you mean. Wow. And so, so it's, it, it, is, it, is, it was a very like weird moment in the conception of this book. But I wonder if, you know, what we're witnessing is, you know, a symptom or, or, or a cause of a much larger shift in thought or a much larger um, problem. Yes, but but it's not. Um, unfortunately, it's it doesn't have the simplicity of being translatable from place to place. Mm. So every cultural situation, in the way that it interprets its heartland, is specific, and yet the influence that it's encountering, the force that that is like creating this kind of revivalism. That is more general. Do you understand what I, you understand what I mean, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting that you know you, you mentioned this idea of the uh, the intellectual suicide. You know, digging into your life, it seems that that's you know that's the process that's happening. You know, a few months back, right, your overseas citizen of India card was revoked because you were criticizing you know Modi's government, right? There was a, uh, I think it. In when was it May 2019? You 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 published a, a piece in Time magazine, in which uh, Modi was referred to as India's divider in chief, and this essentially you know got you well got your OCI card revoked right and denied entry, um, and so this is in some ways a, a form of you know cutting off the intellectual you know power of of a nation when you start to do this Soviet style censorship here. Yes. And, but also like, you know, I was in such a strange position because I was born of this like extremely peculiar marriage or not marriage. It was a relationship. Uh, my mother was Indian and my father was Pakistani and I never knew my father. My mother and him had a, like a brief love affair. And then my mother brought me home to India to grow up. And, um, and that for me was always my country. It was like, it was the country where I lived for the majority of my life. And, uh, but in a weird way, because Indian society is so patriarchal, there's this sense that like, w when that cover story broke, I was suddenly nothing but a Pakistani. I was like, I was a Muslim. I was a Pakistan. I was somebody to be rooted out, you know? And, and, and I guess like, in a weird way, all my books have dealt with this theme of part of a group of people that are kind of destined for extinction, that they cannot survive in this place, and that it's only a matter of time before like some kind of upsurge or some kind of swell of feeling will come and and like sort of unseat them or, or, or remove them. And th there's this lovely moment in, in, in a great book, by the way, a jesting pilot by Aldous Huxley. And he talks about how the English in India uh, in the colonial period, he's like, we're only, we're like money, you know, we're like, we're banknotes. We're sort of as good as we say our worth is. And as much as people are willing to accept that worth, because if they're not ex willing to accept that worth, we don't even, no violence is required to remove us. The Indians simply by ignoring us can remove us. And, and it was something very similar for, for, the, for the, the English speaking or the colonized classes in India. We lived 
with a very similar sense of precarity in relation to India. And we were not um, aware um, of the remove at which we lived to our place. And so, so I guess like it was, I was singled out, but I had always sensed that this was coming. Mm. This English speaking class or this colonized class that you speak of, is that the same uh, class of people that you refer to in the book as the uh, translator class? The class of interpreters? Uh, sorry, yes, the class of interpreters. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that is, that's, that's right. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the questions I was I wanted to ask you about is whether or not you got any blowback from other Indians who tried to cancel you or censor you, you know, on the grounds or the argument that they're claiming that you're not a real Indian, therefore you shouldn't be speaking about such topics, right? And and I think this is something that we encounter a lot in travel because writing at the time. Exactly, exactly. So at the time I was writing it, um, it was probably the left in India that felt that I was too generous to to cl- the classical past, which was a, ca- a, a which was a past in which terrible oppression occurred. But I felt that, like at the same time, like this world of traditional India could not be looked at simply as a story of imp- oppression because there was also like like a glory to it. You know, it was a civilizational achievement and to completely denounce it because there was oppression was to like, was, was a historical misrepresentation. So at the, at the left was like, oh my God, here you are valorizing the Brahmins, glorifying them. And I was not doing that. There are like very powerful moments in the book where one understands the horror of what caste is in India. But there was also a glory. And I felt like part of the complexity of the book was representing all that. You know, and 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 and, and complexity unfortunately is in very short supply these days. People don't like it. <laughs> but 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 then obviously when when Modi's people so the interesting thing about this book was that it was praised by Wendy Doniger, who's a very good scholar of Indian learning, but who's also a hate figure for the Indian right. And it was also praised by the general secretary of the BJP, which is the Hindu Nationalist Party. So there was this kind of really strange moment where like, like left and right were both sort of coming together to sort of to accept the book in some ways. And, and then obviously all this stuff happened with that Time magazine piece that I wrote about Modi. And then it was just, it was sort of a wave of abuse and obviously the left suddenly then came to my came to my side to support me because they felt that i was under attack by their enemies you know but this is it's 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 within these um what do they call you know those in greek myth the simplegades like those two rocks between like which people are crushed you know it was it was it's very it was very much like that because what what dies in the middle of like that kind of partisan battle is is obviously like different shades of thought and feeling that one would like to preserve and which you know more and more feel endangered just a quick note to say that if you enjoy the podcast please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app 
or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support. This complexity that you referred to as being in, in short supply, it, it's interesting in light of the culture of, of canceling that uh, we're going through. It's you know, people, you know, I, I'm not sure that I have any issues with like canceling pedophiles and rapists and racists. Like I, I understand that, but it seems that complexity and nuance is missing from the conversation, right? Especially when there's a problem when otherwise fine journalists and writers and editors are censored and canned and attacked for doing the very thing liberal society is founded on. And that's, you know, the free and open exchange of ideas. Like right. if- the provocation. <laughs> Which is so important, you know, the intellectual provocation. I mean, that, that that has always been from literally for 20 centuries. Whether, whether in fact, we're dealing with Western thought, where you, of course, have, but even in Eastern thought, you have, you have the, like, the good Sanskrit scholar has this, has the objection built into his own scholarship. And then that, that challenge, that provocation, which he supplies himself as a criticism of his own thought, is considered to be the vessel for the advancement of thought. So if you remove that provocation, then you end up with something very flat. That sounds a lot like the, the steel man argument. Right? So you present the best uh, challenge to your own line of thinking that you can ar- articulate in order to kind of treat it honestly and accurately. Right. Yeah. I wonder what implications this all has for, for travel writers. I mean, your two books are essentially, you know, have a, have a travel component, but for, for travel writer writers and excuse me, and photographers who, you know, are scrutinized for practicing a craft that many believe is, you know, product of the colonial tradition like I wonder, you know, what where this is going to go for them. Well, Jeremy, people are not reading well when they say that. They they're not reading. They don't have a good sense of history to say that travel writing is the product of the colonial period. You had a whole tradition from people like Ibn Battuta mm-hmm. to Al Biruni who traveled. Like within the medieval world, which was a world at that point dominated by the Muslim world, you had before that people like Megasthenes coming to India. You had like in India, in funny in a funny way, we almost depend on that outs- outside perspective, on that literature of the the gaze from outside to have a certain kind of information about ourselves, because India was India had many, many achievements, but it was not uh, the culture of documenting and of, of a certain kind of writing that you would see in like Virgil's Georgics, a certain specificity didn't exist in India. Like there were many forms of, there, were, there was theater, there was poetry, there were treatises on statecraft, but there was not straight history as exists in the world. There's a kind of unbroken line that exists from from antiquity into the present. So this was not the creation of the colonial enterprise or whatever. But one thing that is very important to remember is, of course, power. You know, power matters a lot. 
And and I want to give you two examples. If you take the example of somebody like Al-Biruni, who comes with the conquering invader, with Muhammad of Ghor, into, with, I think, Ghazni, sorry, into India, and he's at odds with the emperor that he's come with, because he actually cherishes the culture that he's come on, learning about India in order to write properly about India, and writes probably one of the best travel books about India in a thousand years. And his counterpart is probably somebody like Ibn Battuta, who's a little bit of a fraudulent character, and, and writes in a very supercilious way about the same country a few hundred years down the line. So, so I guess what I'm trying to, trying to point you towards is the fact that, like, that this tradition certainly does exist. It's not an advent of colonial intervention. And more importantly, like, you, have to, you have to pay attention to the quality of the person who has set out on their travels. You know, that's everything. And we have a way of judging that. We have a way of judging the seriousness of an inquiry, of an inquiry judging whether the, the person is, 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 a, is a traveler in the true sense or if they're traveling in a, in a slightly fraudulent sense. And those things have to be left in the domain of criticism. It can't be that a certain somebody who's happens to be white is dismissed because he's traveling very seriously in India versus like somebody who's has some claim on authenticity. I mean, if my book, my book is more than anything, a proof of the fact that I'm from India, I grew up in India, but I feel I don't have authenticity. I'm traveling because of a loss of authenticity. There are far many more vectors colliding at each other than, than the idea that something simple like along a color line could be drawn out like that's that's all wrong yeah that makes a lot of sense uh, your distinction between the the fraudulent and the true traveler or the fraudulent and the true writer you know it, it makes a lot of sense in terms of approach right? what are their intentions behind traveling and, and writing are there are they honest are they exploring in, in an open and a, in a just way or are they there just to criticize and, and make a fool of himself or herself. You know, that reminds me of, you know, some of uh, Twain's travel writing in, in the 19th century. And it's a very kind of travelogue style, but, you know, embedded in many of his writings are just kind of these horrible, you know, cultural stereotypes, which make you question, you know, what the hell is he doing? And it's not because he's white that he's doing that, but I have to say, I mean, I, I, I'm judging from the moments in India, like there's, there's a tone of humor, but there are certain things he says about India that are quite, you, that to me strike me as quite serious. Like, for instance, there's this moment where he's in India and he says India's not beautiful. You know, you look at it, it's not vis visually beautiful. And he says, but this landscape has been spiritualized by the, by the persistence of human life here. And he says, when I travel through these wastes, or I travel through this emptiness, or I travel through this landscape, I can't travel through it without feeling a sense of history. I'm paraphrasing him. But, and it's that sense of history that separates a place like India, he says, 
from places like, let's say, Greenland, or if he was traveling through another place where he was, in a sense, in a desolation, but it was an empty desolation, whereas here he felt that there was, he could, he could feel a kind of depth to the landscape. Like, I don't, I don't find Twain bad. I find other people worse. Like, like who? I feel that there's been a, an English modern writing, a travel writing tradition that is pure exoticism, that is pure this world of like, you know, the ones that actually in the 20th century people have cherished, that English schoolboy traveler who goes out in the West and everything is lovely. It's all spices and sweet meats and the people are so kind. Well, you're actually dismissing the inner controversy. That's Octavio Paz's phrase, the inner controversy of a place. You're not traveling seriously. Like, actually, travel is far more fraught. It's far more difficult. And the people who are being critical one has to look at the fact whether there's real concern or whether someone's being contemptuous. But actually, to be critical is far more important. It shows that you're looking seriously. You know, it's, it's very easy to be romantic. So Naipaul, for instance, is a very critical traveler and a very difficult traveler. But to me, that experience of discomfort is far truer to the experience of travel than that English schoolboy tradition of traveling which to me is, is, is just, it's, it's rubbish. The East is not sweet meats and markets. The East is a rough, difficult place, and you had better look at it seriously. I've been going back and reading some of the classic, you know, quote-unquote classic travelogues and, and, and travel books from you know, the post-World War II era. And, you know, some of those books that I've read, in particular, the, the latest one, it's the, it's an Eric Newby book, A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush. He yeah. might as well have, have walked, you know, he could have walked anywhere else in the planet and, and you'd have that same, you know, book. It's, you know, that part of the world was just there as, you know, as him to, to walk on, uh, to walk over. All right? There wasn't any kind of cultural, any true or, or real or honest you know, cultural or historical engagement. In fact, any of the historical engagement was quite literally a footnote in the middle of the book. Right, pure nostalgia. That and 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 it's it's kind of like like the English are full of sympathy for for um, their presence in India, and so they they're always kind of it's always like some little ancestor of theirs who like was some sort of sub-inspector in some part of India, that the, the, in memory of that person, they're setting out once again to India. And that stuff to me is appalling because that's like you're not seeing the shape of history. You're not seeing who you are, but you're also not seeing who the people are who you've come amongst. And so that, like, it's a kind of double fraudulence. Whereas, like, just, I, I feel that, yeah, probably, I mean, you know, I recently read uh, Edith Wharton in Morocco, and I was really, I was struck by, you. we can't, you know, we have to accept all the racial attitudes, all, the, all those things existed in certain ages, and people speak and write in certain ways that are specific to that time. But her observation, the quality of the observation is far more serious. You know, she's able... She's, she's like, it felt 
utterly different because another person they'd recommended a famous English traveler, a contemporary of Wharton in Morocco at that time. And it was all gossip and rubbish and markets. And Wharton, Wharton was so, she was searing. She was really looking, she was looking at the treatment of the Jews in Morocco. She could make the connection to how it would have been in medieval Europe. She was able to see like, what that culture represented between North and South in Morocco. Like to me, that was somebody really taking the place seriously and not coming with that, with that feeling that the world is ours, you know, which, uh, which at that point in America, probably people would not have felt certainly at Twain's time, they would not have felt, but probably even at Wharton's time, they would not have felt that sense of, of that sense of pure entitlement. Yeah, that's that's funny. I was uh, having a conversation with Alexandra Fuller uh, a few months back. Uh, she was a guest editor for the Best American Travel Writing uh, series from last year. And we had a bit of a laugh because we talked about some of the reviews. Um, and it's not just of the book that she edited, but it's all of you know the series editors prior to that. You know, Some of the negative reviews were, were claiming that you know, the, the essays in those travel books are, you know, too charged politically or, you know, dealing with subjects that are far too too grave. It's as if they're kind of interested in, in reading, um, not travel writing, but, you know, holiday or vacation writing. And it's a criticism that a lot of people kind of charged, uh, you know, serious travel writers, right? Um, but that's the, the type of travel writing that is meaty and you know, pulls you in and, it, and it's serious. Uh, that's that for me is the test. And, and I always look, I always look for discomfort because you know what, what it would, what it's like. You arrive in a new place. You don't know how to get started. You don't know who to meet. You don't know how to reckon with the place. And it's not easy. It's not, um, it, if you're taking it seriously, you're entering into a new world of problems, a new world of difficulties, a new world of, of also like looking at yourself against a different background. And all of this is full of nerves and of difficulty. And it, I look for that feeling of discomfort. It's very important to me. We're running a little bit short on time here. And uh, before I let you go, I was going to ask if you could uh, perhaps close out the show by reading a passage of your book. Absolutely. From my open window on West 86th Street, my mind's eye following the westering sun over a roofscape cluttered with heat pumps and slim steel chimneys. In the distance, the curved blades of a turbine vent glinted in the late afternoon light. A sign on the exposed flank of a building read, Sophia Storage Center. Beyond, out of view, was the Hudson. I imagined it like the Ganges in Benares, taking a deep bend north and flowing towards its source in the high Himalayas. The traffic on the Henry Hudson Parkway was stopped, and on the steep escarpment of Riverside Park were acres upon slanting acres of humanity. Bathers and pilgrims, Columbia University students and old ladies with coiffured blonde and copper hair watching the glittering river with vacant intensity. Ghats went down in 200-yard flights of steps like stone bleachers to the edge of the river, where long wooden boats rocked gently in the bilge water. 
Corpses wrapped in their gold brocade lay on bamboo biers awaiting cremation. The sky darkened and silhouettes appeared in the yellow rectangles of the tall apartment buildings on Riverside Drive. The air was high with the clouds of incense, the crashing of bells, the frantic chanting in Sanskrit. The people of two cities and myriad systems of belief poured out into the riverside. The liminal hours stretched out. A daytime darkness silvered the city. Thousands watched through special glasses. Thousands more stood waist-deep in water, their heads lowered, muttering prayers. Old men with knotty hands leaned on their wooden staffs. Women carried babies on their hips. There were farmers and laborers, bank clerks and UPS delivery men. A party of schoolchildren observed the changing shape of the sun through a steel colander. As its disk went dark, some cried beautiful, others stood in solemn terror as Rahu, the Eclipser, a demon riding a chariot drawn by eight black horses, swallowed the sun. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support.